0: Hello and welcome to the Power and the Key podcast. I'm your host Neil Winterton, and joining him on the line as he does nearly every week, it's Ben Cadd. How are you, Caddy?
1: Yeah, it's been a bit of a drop-off uh, as the season's got longer. I suppose that um, yeah, the, the wet weather hits in, it uh, sometimes the motivation is a bit harder to come by. But now this this week was away in Queensland. Um, which was a good break uh, to get get out of Melbourne, anyway. So
0: how was it, mate? So, the weather, obviously, much better than it is down here as we shiver through eleven to twelve degree days <laughs> with a wind chill factor caddy that I can tell you isn't very good when you're standing out in the open.
1: No, well, I was out in the open this morning for the Suns under eights um, goal umpiring at eight thirty this morning. I can tell you. Well, that's that some dedication. <laughs> the wind chill and the precipitation levels were, were quite high. <laughs> Uh, for that one, but, how many um, layers did the, you
0: have on while you're out there, Caddy? It's got to well, be at least three or four.
1: Well, I'm, I look pretty thick at the best of times, and with the um, <laughs> t shirt, jumper, hoodie, and the jacket, and about three hoodies on uh, On my head, I think it was uh, looking like Big on Loompa. But um,
0: any gloves, Caddy? Because the hands can no, uh, don't even no, oh, not, come on. Not when you've
1: got to wave those flags, mate. You've got to be. Keep, keep them nice, How many times nice did you, you wave the flag? I'm
0: tipping. It's not a high scoring affair in uh, under what is it? Under eights? Did you say under
1: eights? Yeah, no, I think it was five goals to four. That's yeah, not bad. Yeah, not quite a shootout, but um, enough to keep you busy. So, no, it was um yeah good to good to watch them
0: again this morning. And what do we get up to in Queensland, mate? Do you, do you hit any of the uh, the worlds?
1: Um, yeah, we only went to Dream World. That was part of the family section of the holiday. I was up for a bit of a real estate junk at the first couple of nights. So, um. Hit a few more adult type environments the first couple
0: of nights. Okay, which, was, uh, which uh, is good. Do we need? To do, is it some James Harden style <laughs> setup, or what are we? What are we talking, Caddy? Well, uh,
1: I think we'll probably be too family friendly this, uh, this podcast. mate, <laughs> to get into too much of it, but uh, fair enough.
0: But no, nah, it's good. I think I will be booking my trip again for next year. Well, uh, well, sounds like I might have to uh, join this uh, <laughs> real estate junker, Caddy. By the sounds of it, sounds like uh, you got up to a bit of fun in the after hours department, but. Uh, there's been plenty of fun, Caddy, in the NBA. We've we've got had Game 1 of the NBA Finals in the books on Friday, our time, and it was Boston, I guess a little bit surprisingly, coming coming away with a 120-108 victory. But uh, we'll sort of break it down quarter by quarter, and it was Golden State who came out, well, Steph Curry in particular, who came out on fire in that first quarter, Caddy. Six of eight from three. 21 points from Steph Curry in what was just an incredible first quarter. And it was just one of those Steph Curry runs that you see him going from time to time, where he just starts feeling himself and he's, you know, he's dancing around and knocking down the three ball. And I think we probably saw a bit of an adjustment in the period for the for the Celtics, given they'd come off playing Boston and uh, Miami in the last couple of series who who run a totally different offense to to what the Golden State Warriors dish up so they were dropping a little bit too much early on curry and he was getting a little bit too much air and once you do that it's basically uh good night and Steph was knocking him down but i thought from a from a boston perspective caddy that it would you know, Steph Curry's gone off for 21 points, but they're only down by four points at, at quarter time, which I think they probably would have looked at that and thought, well, if Curry's gone off for 21 points, we could be staring down at uh, you know a 10 to 12 point deficit. But there were some positive signs early uh, for the Celtics, I thought. And in particular, it was Derek White, who was aggressive in that first quarter, took a couple of threes and hit a nice little floater. And generally, you can tell what sort of game you're going to get out of Derek White pretty early. And I thought that boded well. Uh, for for the Boston Celtics with him coming out aggressive, but when you saw the well, at, at quarter time caddy with with uh, Golden State up by four points and Curry on fire, did you think it was Boston were in a bit of strife here, or, or did you think that like I thought they were in a reasonable position considering what had happened?
1: Oh, no, I think you would have had the assumption that at that point you know the Warriors had things on their terms and Curry clearly you know, having a, a night out at that point. So yeah, you probably expect that the momentum would have carried through. Um, on the back of that, and like we obviously see, Boston responded in that second second quarter and probably felt, as you mentioned, pretty bullish that they were able to hang around on the back of what was exceptional shooting in that first quarter. But um, no, I think you know they couldn't have asked for a better start. Uh, the Warriors at home, um, you know, with a crowd, you know, getting up to, up and about, absolutely being back in the finals. So uh, yeah, terrific from the outset, and um, yeah, it really set the set the scene for what was going to be a pretty topsy turvy game in the end.
0: It certainly was And As a second quarter, it was just both teams just continued to fire away from three. They actually combined for the most three pointers in a half in NBA Finals history, hitting twenty combined. But I thought the most interesting thing from my perspective, Caddy, was the fact that, you know, we, I mentioned Steph Curry was just on fire in that first quarter. Well, he sat essentially the first six minutes of that second quarter, and then, you know, he gets back out in the game, takes a couple of minutes to get back into it. And he only attempted two shots in that second quarter. So for me, I understand that that's the usual sort of substitution pattern for Steph Curry right throughout the season, but this isn't Game 62 against the Orlando Magic. You're in Game One of the NBA Finals. Curry's come out on fire, 21 points, six of eight from three. If I was Kerr, I would have started him in at the start of that second quarter. See how he went for the first couple of minutes. If he if he didn't continue his hot shooting, well then maybe sit him. But you get that break at that quarter time at the quarter time break there, playing for a couple of minutes, see how he goes, and and then assess from there. I just thought it was. As I said, I understand that's his usual substitution pattern, but I would have liked to have seen Curry start that second quarter. For him to to go off in that first quarter and then only attempt two shots in that second quarter seems seems pretty strange to me. What do you reckon about that, Caddy? Do you think Kerr's well within his rights just to sit, stick to that same sub- substitution pattern that he has throughout the season? Or do you think in a, in a finals game when you've got your number one man on fire, you probably should break away from that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, he's... Clearly on a run and even at the very end of the first quarter, he hit a three and they got another steal late. Yeah. So he was certainly still running running on fire at that point. So it yeah, wouldn't have been any harm, I assume, in, in kind of rolling him out to start the quarter and see if the momentum was to continue. But I, you, you probably let Boston off the hook a little bit. They can almost take a bit of a deep breath and, and recoup afterwards a pretty frenetic start, um, start to the game. So yeah, no, you make make a good point, but you know, because Probably pretty systematic as well, and, and had these systems and structures in play, and, and felt that yeah, clearly that was that how they're going to distribute
0: his minutes. So Boston, yeah, as you said, they sort of rebounded in that second quarter, went up at the break by two points at, at halftime, which was probably a little bit of a surprise given how hot Golden State had been. But we saw that the the normal sort of run that Golden State, particularly throughout their championship years, they were known as a really good th- uh, third-quarter team and it came to fruition in, in this game as well. Their defence ratcheted right up. Looney was fantastic. He was a couple of blocks. I think it was two possessions in a row where he denied the Celtics at the rim. And Wiggins was really good in the third quarter, had 12 points. Curry sort of got going a little bit again and they, they outscored them 38-24. to 24. So they went in with, with a 12-point lead into that third quarter, uh, sorry, into that final quarter. And I don't think... I don't think they'd conceded uh, when Golden State had a double figure lead in the playoffs. I don't think they'd actually lost the game as yet. So, going into that last quarter, Caddy, did you give Boston any chance at all, or did you think it was just going to be Boston? Uh, sorry, Golden State by how far?
1: Yeah, I think I think that would have had to be how you're feeling. I mean, they were certainly you know had some positive things going for them at that time. Boston still with some shooting. Um, from particularly old Horford and Derek White, as you mentioned earlier. But, you know, Tatum had nothing going really that entire game. So there's really nothing to think that at that point they'd have enough left in the in the tank, Boston, to sort of quell that momentum the Golden State had taken into three-quarter time. So you sort of looked at it and go, well, you know, it's a pretty significant lead. You mentioned that the fact that they're pretty tough to overrun in any situation um, in a fourth quarter. So I think the fact that it, the table's turned pretty drastically there in the last quarter was um, a yeah, huge blindside really for I think any neutral person uh, watching it and probably wouldn't have, you would have been excused for, for thinking there were no chance to win that game at that point when you know clearly the, the Warriors had a, an outstanding third quarter and, and had all the momentum back in their hands. So it was just an incredible outcome I think really um, and again such a rollercoaster of a, of a ride uh, for both teams in, in that match.
0: We've seen Boston just be so resilient right throughout the playoffs, whether it's bouncing back for a loss or, you know, a bad start in the game or whatever it might be. But that last quarter was just phenomenal. Again, with Curry on the bench, it was Boston who got off to a 9-0 run at the start of the quarter just to shrink, you know, that deficit they had straight away. And it was Jalen Brown was the catalyst for that early. He had 10 Early points, and he he was really cooking, and you could you could tell that he had a bit you know a bit of a pep in his step, and we could see that uh, his teammates knew he had it going, so they were getting in the ball, and just to be able to, I guess, sort of eradicate that deficit so quickly, uh, just just made the made that uh, last quarter a real fight, and and as I said, Boston were outstanding in the last quarter; they hit their first seven three pointers and ended up hitting nine of twelve. Uh, for three in that last quarter, so just an incredible last quarter. They they basically closed out, well not not closed out the whole last la, that last bit of the quarter, but went on a seventeen to zero run to basically ice the game. And it wasn't until uh, Clay Thompson got a, a layup with a minute to go that that uh, Golden State finally scored. But they outscored them forty to sixteen in the last quarter. So the margin twenty four points to be outscored is the most in, in a finals uh, quarter. So just an incredible outcome, as you said there. So what do we make of this now, Caddy? Obviously Boston now have pinch-backed home court, but Boston have actually been a better uh, team away from home, surprisingly. They're now 8-2 and two, uh, on the road in the playoffs. We saw Miami knock them off a couple of times at home. So it's not as if you know this series is is definitely 100% swung back Boston's way because they've taken out Game 1. Given what you've seen in Game 1, Caddy, where have you seen this series go? Oh, we didn't have our tips... Because we didn't speak about this going into into the series, how did you think this series was going to unfold before game one?
1: Oh, look! I thought Boston were right in, <laughs> up to their you know right in it all the way because they've just shown that their resilience this whole season. Really, I mean, they started the season so terribly and huge question marks about you know whether this was the right you know young players to build around, and you know the coach was already under pressure, you know first year coach as well. So what they've done really since the start of the calendar year, you had to. Really admire, and I think you know the fact that they were able to to knock out Milwaukee um, when things you know weren't looking like that was going to necessarily happen, and then the Miami series again, just up and down like a yo yo, had no idea where to look with it. They they've really been the team I think that's that's shown the most heart and fight and desire and will to win. So you, you even the fact that um yeah you probably organically you know drift towards the Golden State Warriors just for the fact of home court and and the well, the narrative of anything. But I think um it would have been a bit unfair to Boston to, to sort of write them off in uh, just for that. So I think the fact that they've been able to come in and steal game one, you know, they had less rest going into this series, obviously, compared to Golden State. Now, when they were basically playing every other night in the, West, uh, the Eastern Conference finals and the previous round, they at least had another two-day break here in between game one and game two. I think they get another two days off between game two and game three. So I think that'll really help in their favour. And I I don't see any reason to think that they can't come out and win game two as well here and really put Golden State on their back foot. I mean, I think my tipping record through these players has been absolutely horrendous. So (laughs) I'd take that for (laughs) a train of salt. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, at this stage, I think uh, Boston have have clearly got the momentum um, carrying on through from the end of that Miami series.
0: Yeah, I've I've been on the Boston bandwagon right throughout the playoffs, and I just thought heading into this series that they'd had a had a better grounding. Although it had been obviously a very taxing playoff run for them, but to get through Brooklyn, understanding that Brooklyn obviously you know aren't the team that we probably thought they're going to be this year. But then to get through the reigning champs, you know, Sands, uh, Middleton, but that's still a very good win. Then Miami, I mean, that that, that came down to a game seven, but Miami are a very tough proposition. So I thought that. Probably they they were battle tested, as I said. Probably they'd used a few uh a, too many uh a few more petrol tickets than they would have liked, but I thought they were battle tested compared to what Golden State had gone to. So going through, so yeah, it was very impressive as you said for Boston to take away uh, to take game one. I expect Golden State to bounce back in game two, but for me the biggest question mark for Golden State heading into game two and for the remainder of this series is uh, is what are they going to do when Boston goes small? So Boston have generally been starting. Horford and Williams when he's been healthy. But in game one, Boston were actually a plus 31 in 16 minutes when they only had one of the big men. So when either only one of Horford or Williams were playing, in those 16 minutes they were a plus 31, which is just an incredible stat. Now, understanding it's it's a limited sample size, so it can be a little bit noisy. But I think the reason that they're able to be so effective when they were small is... Pretty much Jordan Poole for for Golden State uh, was a bit of a liability for them in game one. He played 25 minutes. He was minus 19 in his 25 minutes, two or seven from the field, four turnovers, and we know he's not absolutely great on defense. So, you know, we we spoke about uh, this lineup that you were terming the the 3G lineup, I think, howdy you were calling it, with with Poole uh, in that lineup and how good that had been. They sort of going away from that a little bit as the playoffs has progressed. So that's the biggest question mark for me. When, you know, when the whips are cracking late in the game, we know Curry, Clay, Wiggins, and Draymond are going to be out there. Who is going to be that fifth guy out there with them? Are they going to stick fat with Jordan Poole given the tremendous season that he's had and, you know, he started the playoffs in really good fashion? Or are they going to look at someone like a Looney who was good in his 25 minutes, had the six offensive rebounds? You know, I'd have put a junior hit four or five from three. I don't know if I'd go down that path. Iguodala, they sort of dusted him off for 12 minutes. Again, I don't know if I would go down that path. For me, Gary Paytons, maybe a bit of a dark horse. Now... They said he was available for game one. He he didn't get played, so whether he's, you know, still recovering, we're not too sure. We know he's elite on the defensive end, so he's not gonna leak any points on that end. And he did shoot 35% from three, albeit he can be a bit of a streaky shooter. So which way would you lean Caddy if you'll Golden to state for that for that fifth spot with the other four? Would you stick fat with Jordan Poole and hope that his shooting comes around and he doesn't get exposed on the defensive end? Or would you look to more towards maybe a Looney or even a patent for defensive purposes?
1: Well, I think this is sort of goes to the heart of maybe what Golden State's problem is in this series, where they've been quite unsettled with their with their lineup in terms of you know how they're distributing their minutes and even the starting lineup to an extent. So obviously, once Curry came back in and he was coming off the bench there for a while, he obviously came into the starting lineup as he's certainly going to be doing, which pushed pull back to the bench, and then we saw some. Kaminga starts, and then we've seen Looney in and out of the starting lineup. So I think they've yeah really potentially outsmarted themselves in terms of you know what their best lineup is. The thing we we know about Boston is they've been effectively playing seven or eight players really in the whole playoff stretch. So depending on availability of Robert Williams, so it's either being Grant Williams and and the rest of the five, which is Tatum, Borford, um, Brown, and Smart, and then you're just getting. You know, the minutes out of Pritchard and, and um, Derek White. And that's the lineup. That is it. There's no sort of mucking around from it. Maybe a bit of Daniel Tice here and there. But it's been a seven or eight man rotation the whole way through. Whereas Golden State, really, you know, we hadn't seen Andre Iguodala for, for a fair portion. Otto Porter's, you know, status game to game is always interesting. You know, you never know whether he's going to be out on the court. And then if he is, that sort of throws out the rotation as well. So, yeah, I think it's a good question as to, to what their best lineup is. And they've probably flirted a little bit with the form of some of their guys, Jordan Poole in particular, around how they've probably managed his game time. So yeah, Boston's a, a different unit. They, we know how hard knows they are defensively. But yeah, you mentioned that smaller lineup they can roll out offensively. I don't think they're gonna to get too concerned with, you know, say Derek White shooting twenty one percent and five three pointers. I think they can live with that the risk of that happening again. But yeah, I think necessarily for them, I think when they're most at their they're most electric, it is when Jordan pulls out there and firing, so I'd be probably geared around that that lineup that we did see: Green, Wiggins, Curry, Thompson, Paul uh, for longer stretches um, in, in more meaningful time.
0: Yeah, you'd think they probably would stick with that just to see how it goes. In this game, And as you said, you, you just sort of hope that uh, Boston don't continue to, to be as hot as they were from three. And you'd probably think, well, not probably, they're more than likely you know, going to cool down. So, yeah, I think... Well, they got 15 three points
1: out of Horford, Marcus Smart and Derek White. Yeah. So I
0: don't think... Well, that was a career high for Al Horford from three. So you, you don't think he's going to go back-to-back career high three uh, from three, do you? No, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to doubt it pretty strongly. So so which way are you leaning for game two, Caddy? Are you expecting... Golden State to bounce back, or, or do you think Boston can go up to 0
1: Well, I think yeah, I think the the way you'd probably be looking at it realistically is that Golden State are going to be favoured, and they'll well, I'm sure the bookmakers have them as a as a strong favourite. But I'm, I might stick with Boston here because I think um, yeah, momentum's a, a funny thing, and that was a really you know team morale you know win on the road um, in a in an atmosphere that would have been pretty electric, and and certainly you know clearly heavily against them in that first game, and to be able to kind of take Curry's best best hits at the start of the game, and then particularly what they saw in the third quarter and come out and really dominate that fourth quarter. I think it'd be, you know, a shame for them if they kind of take the foot off the pedal here and, and kind of just think that the job's half done and just by stealing home court. I think if they can come out again and, and really, you know, lock down defensively and, and try and grind this second game out, I don't think they'd want to be scoring, you know, expecting to score 120 and win. I think they need to probably get that, you know, that game total down into the low hundreds and and try and grind out uh, the next one more in a, in a defensive uh, style of game. So I'll, I'll stick with Boston on this one, um, which you know, is, is against the grain. But I think um, there's nothing to suggest here that they're not up for this challenge.
0: That'll be massive if they come out and win tomorrow. And as you mentioned, having those those two days off in, in between games for, for Hawford and Smart and Williams and these guys that are, that are carrying some niggles, it's certainly going to benefit them. But I, I'm predicting Golden State will bounce back. I, I think Kerr will... Give Curry a few more minutes and whether he sort of changes his substitution pattern, uh, you'd, maybe he won't. I'm not too sure. But I think they bounce back pretty strongly. This is this is an absolute must-win game. If they go down 0-2, going back to Boston, even though, as I said, Boston's form hasn't been all that great at home, you know, coming back from a 0-2, you know, when you haven't, uh, you know, when you've given up home court, you know, that really happens. I know Milwaukee... One last year after they lost the, the the first two games, but those two games were at Phoenix. So I'm predicting a bounce back uh, for Golden State tomorrow. Now, the big talking point, Caddy, throughout the finals is always who's going to win the finals MVP, and if Golden State win it, will Steph finally get his first one? And, you know, there's plenty of headlines written about the way the finals MVP goes. We spoken, well, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, how we, how we would like the MVP MVP to, to adopt a Brownlow sort of style, and I, I will sort of steal this from the No Dunks podcast who do have the Aussie on their uh, lead, and they've actually started doing a 3-2-1 for each game. So we're going to do that as well, Caddy. So after game one, which way? who would get your 3-2-1 from, from game one of the finals?
1: Oh, good question. Um, well, look, I think you'd have to give, well, I think, three votes to Al Horford, really. <laughs> I yeah, mean, to that's, one, that's two, how three. I would have gone, yep. Once in a 15-year year game there. I think Jalen Brown, for me, two votes, and, and Steph Curry, one. Um, okay. I think, you know, the fact that they've come out with a 12-point win is, is pretty significant. Jalen Brown was the guy, as you mentioned, that sort of kept hanging in there um, at times during the game. Yeah, 24 points to seven rebounds. So I think that's a, a solid game for him. And then Curry, obviously, 34 points. You know, if that was in a winning side, he, he would have got the three. But, um, yeah, I think that's such a such a swing winning versus losing that I think you've got to kind of look after the winners in, in this sense.
0: That's fair enough. I'm I'm happy to go with that. I was I was definitely going Hawford three, Brown two, and I'd so I'd thrown Derek White in for the one, but yeah, you know, you can definitely twist my arm to go for Steph Curry. He was clearly the reason that Golden State had any chance. So we'll keep a running total, Caddy and we'll see if our if our Brownlow votes line up to the way the uh, the finals MVP ends up going because, as I said, it's always a massive story once the series is over. So, obviously, heading into the into the series, you know, Tatum was the clear favourite for Boston, but, you know, he was obviously pretty ordinary in that first game despite the fact he had, I think, he finished with, with 12 assists. He was 3 of 17 from memory from the field. So, he certainly... A playoff
1: low for him too in terms of a shooting percentage is his worst shooting line in any of his playoff
0: games, apparently. Yeah, so so obviously not an, an ideal start, but no doubt you'd expect him to bounce back tomorrow, and that's certainly some upside there for Boston. So, yeah, as I said, we'll keep a running total uh, throughout the, the finals and, and work out who wins our Brownlow-style finals MVP. But what we'll do now, Caddy, is talk about the two teams that were eliminated in the in the finals conference and, and sort of what we'd expect them to do in the offseason. So we'll start with the, with the Miami Heat, who went down in a, in a nail-biting game, uh no in game seven lost to Boston with Jimmy Butler attempting a, a pull-up three to to go for the glory and win the game for them. Firstly, what did you think about that, Shalcatty? Were you happy enough for Butler to pull up and take the three, or would you have liked to see him drive in and, and try and challenge Al Horford at the rim? Well, it's
1: probably a bit against his, his style. I mean, he, the amount of threes he's probably given up during the season and, and the playoffs. I mean, he, he he's wide open half the time and doesn't take the shot. So, yeah, I think definitely probably more within his mo to, to, to take it in and try and get something happening in, you know inside the paint but um look you know he, he's proven to be the, the main man there and you know if, it, if he felt that he was up for the, that moment then probably fair play to him but I would have liked to see him probably get a bit more creative and, and stick to what he's best at.
0: The, the minute when he shot it when it left his hand I'd scream what are you doing? And then but the more I thought about it, like he'd played every minute of the game. He was obviously pretty fatigued. And he'd hit a pull-up three very similar to that uh, just before halftime. So fair enough. As you said, he's the main man. You've got to live and die by by your number one player. And you know, the more I thought about it, as I said, I didn't have a problem with Butler taking that shot. But moving on to what they're gonna do in the offseason, we've seen, we've they've obviously come up short. They've they've really pushed a, a really good Boston team to a seventh game. They've obviously got some question marks heading into the season. I think the two biggest ones are, firstly, Duncan Robinson, who has four years, $73 million left on his contract. We saw him basically not play very much at all throughout the playoffs. So you've got a guy sitting on your bench essentially earning that much money. What do you think they'll do with him, Caddy? Is it just a matter of you know they'll they'll go back to the well with him? He's he's played a reasonably big role for them throughout the regular season. Or do you think they'll try and attach an asset to to him, whether – probably going to be a future you know first round pick or whatever it may be to get off that contract and open up some cap space
1: yeah look i think they'll proactively be trying to do that i think in the end they clearly went with max Struess over him and you know he's on a on a cheap deal going into next year i mean their whole backcourt that's that time Struess and vincent are both on you know effectively minimum rookie deals um, heading into the next season so Yeah, to have that that salary sitting there for for someone that, you know, unless there's huge improvement in the off-season, I think, yeah, as you mentioned, they'd be looking to proactively shift that off if if there is a taker. But, yeah, as you mentioned, they'll no doubt have to attach some compensation to a team to take that on. So I think outside of that, they really need to look at, you know, the ball handling, yeah, in this, you know, that that playoff series, the turnovers were horrific really in the end. And, um, you know, Kyle Lowry, Certainly looked that like his best was was certainly well well in the rearview mirror. Um, you, would, you would hope that
0: that hamstring injury was affecting him, affecting him because given that this was probably going to be his best season, given his age. If he's going to go downhill from what we saw during the playoffs, it, it's, they're in a bit of strife with that contract, aren't they?
1: Well, they are. Yeah, I mean, he, he looks. He looked pretty washed up, to, to be fair, and um, they kind of don't really have. I know Tyler Hero was was not playing either, and and, and missed a fair chunk of that last series. But he, he's probably not the guy that you're you're going to put the ball in the hands of predominantly either. So I think you know they they made it to look to shore up some ball handling there in the backcourt because it was a, it was a real issue for them particularly in, in the games that they lost, it was yeah obviously noticeable that there was a, a huge issue there for them and, and Jimmy Butler playing a lot more off the ball as well. So, yeah, that, that would be an area that they're going to have to try and um, consider looking into in the off-season too.
0: Now, you mentioned Tyler Hero. He's due for an extension in the off-season. What sort of number would you feel confident if you're Pat Riley giving Tyler Hero? We saw Jalen Brown a couple of, was it two seasons ago, sign a four-year, $107 million contract. For me, that's... Probably a bit rich. I'd like to get it somewhere for a year in the ninety sort of mark. What what, what do you think is a, a pretty fair number for a Tyler Hero?
1: Well, I dare say he's probably eyeballing the number that Duncan Robinson got. I think he should be getting more than that now. Robinson's almost got the best part of you know eighty odd million dollars over the next four years as well. So yeah, I think it's got to be somewhere above that. So whether it's you know in that twenty two million a year range would be something I'm sure he'd be he'd be seeking.
0: Yeah, it, that's a, I think that's about the right number. Like, he, he obviously was sixth man of the year, but he doesn't start. I mean, he essentially plays starters' start minutes. But we've seen him, you know, prior to the injury, he's been exposed a couple of times now in the playoffs, the last two two seasons in particular. So, yeah, somewhere at, you know, 20, no more than 25, I would think you, you'd like to go for, for Tyler Hero. Now, PJ Tucker has a $7.3 million player option. He obviously played a big role. For them throughout the season and in the playoffs so they're probably hoping that he picks that up the the other big one caddy is is Victor Victor Oladipo who was on a 2.3 million dollar contract this year he's now an unrestricted free agent now he showed some signs of life I suppose more so on the defensive end uh, throughout the playoffs uh, for Miami where I thought he was very very good now his offensive game sort of comes and goes and he's don't think he's ever going to get back to that player that we saw be a two-time All Star when he was at Indiana. But for Victor Oladipo in the offseason caddy, what, what number would you feel comfortable giving him? Is he a ten million dollar player? Is he fifteen? What, what, what do you think he's worth on the open market?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think he'll if he could get a ten million dollar contract, he'd be jumping at it. I would have thought. Like, a, it's going to be really, really interesting to see where it lands. It's, it's hard to see a team, you know, giving him lengthy a lengthy contract anything more than three years, I think, would be a significant risk. So if he could get somewhere in that two-year, $20, $20, range, I think that's probably something he should be seriously looking at and considering because I just can't see a team you know, <laughs> opening the checkbook and, and giving him a
0: long-term deal at a big number off, off the back of what we've seen um, this season. Yeah, I agree. There, I, there's no way you're giving him more than two to three years at around that, that $10 million mark. But, yeah, it will be interesting to see what he gets through do does a team look at what he did, uh, defensively, and and think, well, if he can get his offensive game back to, to what it was, because he sort of did display some that he sort of had a little bit of that athleticism left, but it, as I said, it was sort of coming and going. So that's the biggest question mark for him. So just just heading into next next season, Caddy, where would you sort of rank Miami? Was this a, a bit of a? I don't want to say fluke, but they, they ended up being the number one seed in the east and pushing all the way to game seven in the in the conference finals. So they were the, a Jimmy Butler three away from going to the finals. If you were seeding them before we know obviously what's happening with any of the other teams in the East, where do they sit? We've obviously got you know Boston, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, I would have ahead of them. You know, we obviously don't know what the hell's happening with Kyrie Irving at the moment, but let, let's say he's back and, and Simmons finally gets out on the court and, of course, they've still got KD. I'd have Brooklyn ahead of Miami. And then you've got the trio of Philly, Toronto and Chicago that can all sort of maybe creep up. Where do Miami sit for you, Caddy, heading into into next season?
1: Yeah, probably where you, you had them probably sitting this year, whereas I, I had them behind that, you know, running what we probably thought was a big three or a big four teams, and you probably think, going into the season again, and and probably unfairly, that they would sit below those teams. And I think there was probably reasons that, obviously clearly reasons, you know, Boston didn't have the season. They would have expected the same as Philadelphia. Um, You know, Milwaukee lost Middleton towards the end as well. So, yeah, I'd I'd have probably that that fourth slot um, hanging in. Um, But, yeah, again, you, you just... Can't uh, write these guys off because every time you do that, they they sort of just sneak up and and bite you. So while Jimmy Butler's there and and healthy um, and motivated, then they're always going to be a great regular season team, I think. And, um, yeah, they've got enough going for them with young players and development still there. Um, I think Bam Adebayo can go to another level again. Um, And if they can sort of, yeah, shore up maybe a bit more defence on the wing and a bit more size behind Adebayo, I think they're going to be well – well-positioned again to make, make a run, whether they could be the number one seed again. I think this was their their opportunity to kind of utilise that. They you know they made a fair fist of it, to be fair, get all the way to the Eastern Conference finals and a Game 7 at home, so there's not much more you could do than that other than yeah, get, get the job done at the end. So, yeah, terrific season on the whole, and they should be
0: feeling reasonably good about getting into next year. Yeah, when they signed uh, Butler to the extension and got Lowry on board, I thought, <laughs> And Tucker as well. The first year these guys were together, we going to be was going to be their best shot at it. And they, as you said, that they made a pretty good fist of it, getting to Game Seven. But I think they're just slightly behind Boston, Milwaukee, and and potentially Brooklyn as well if they can get all their pieces out on the court. But you never underestimate Eric Spoelstra, Cady, who's certainly, in my opinion, anyway, the best coach in the NBA. So he always manages to get the absolute best out of any roster he puts together. The other team that that uh, got knocked out in the conference finals were the Dallas Mavericks. Now, they've got a couple of sort of question marks heading into the offseason, but clearly the biggest one is Jalen Brunson, who who is now an unrestricted free agent. He was on a tiny contract this year, $1.8 million, because he was a, a second-round pick, so they signed him to that, that four-year deal when they drafted him, which was great for them. He's, as I said, on the open market now. There's been some suggestions that New York might be interested in him. Now they would have to free some cap space up to make a, to make a decent offer at him. Detroit's another one that could potentially be sniffing around to give Cade Cunningham a, a nice ball handler behind him. So so where, where do you sit with Brunson Caddy? Do you think that that Dallas should go all in and, and sign into a four-year, $90, $100 million contract? Are you confident that him and Luca are a good match? They obviously can both be exposed uh, on the defensive end, Brunson because he's he's, he's very undersized, and Luca just you know, he's a bit slow-footed and probably doesn't quite put the effort in as yet. Do you think that's a that's a, a pairing there that can take Dallas to to being a championship contender, or do you think they just sort of move on from Brunson and try and surround Luca with a, with a better piece? Yeah, look,
1: I think they're in the position obviously pay him the most and give him the most years, and and I think Mark Cuban, you know, certainly commented after the playoffs that they're. They're motivated to do that. So it means they're going to go heavily into luxury tax. They're going to be paying an absolute shitload uh, for their backcourt. I mean, if you're talking about Luca and then Brunson on a huge number, you know, it's going to be an enormous cost.
0: What number yeah. are you comfortable giving Brunson, Caddy?
1: Well, I think he's going to be in that, yeah, probably that 25 million a year range. Um, yeah. That's probably what, what he's going to be getting. Do, do, you,
0: do you consider him a high-level sort of starting point guard or is he just sort of a you know an average starting point guard?
1: Well, I think he's probably able to, um, yeah, feed off, you know, or, or get away with a uh, few of his deficiencies because he's playing next to to Luka Doncic. But that said, I think he's, he's shown. I think we've seen players of that ilk that have, you know, made that improvement and then be able to go out on their own and, and have their own team. And you know, even like a Victor Oladipo when he went to um, Indiana and sort of, you know, took up took up the reins and became the number one player. I think Brunson's got the you know the potential to be able to do that. For a, for a team, I don't think he's, he's going to be a number one guy anywhere, but you're almost going to be paying him like one. So I think in Dallas, a situation where they haven't been a free agent destination for so long, I think they kind of really need to at least get the deal done, and then, you know, look, worry about the rest of it later. And they've been they've been seen to at least um, be able to to get off big contracts. We saw it with Chris Depp's this year, so I don't think that's necessarily a problem if it doesn't necessarily turn out. For them straight away, but I think um, the fact that they've got the opportunity to probably pay him what you know more than anyone else um, and and give him what he what he's after, I think on the back of this year where they you know became a Western Conference um, Finals team, uh, that that's probably what will happen.
0: So they've they've got they've got some other question marks too. Some guys on some some pretty. Big numbers that they could look to move to to free up some cap space or, or try and get some other players in. So we've got Hardaway Jr. fifty three million over the next three years, which is a declining contract with the, which the cap cap nerds love. Now he obviously didn't play the back half of the season and missed the entire playoffs. Dinwiddie thirty seven million over the next two years, and Bertans forty nine million over the next three years. Do, do you expect Caddy that they're going to try and move one or two of those contracts to to free up some space to bring in another big name? Uh, outside of Brunson or do you think they'll just sort of keep the status quo see how they go for the first half of the year and then maybe look to try and move one of these guys maybe even the trade deadline next season
1: yeah I think they'll probably run it back and you know hopefully get Tim Hardaway back in the fold he obviously missed a significant portion of the back end of the season so I think they'd like to see what they've got initially I just don't know who the big fish is that they're going to be able to to, to draw in there to, to put around Luca and, and whether it is um, Jalen Brunson. I think, you know, Woody has shown, you know, he's, he's capable at times that Bertan's contract's a disaster. But, you know, if he can, you know, really work on his game in the off-season come back and be a bit more consistent, then I think they've got to, yeah, at least run this back initially and um, see what they've got and not necessarily have to blow it up um, just yet. As that said, they're going to be an expensive team um, if things don't go right for them in what's going to be a, a really deep, we think Western Conference next year with an improved Denver and LA Clippers, would expect. So it's certainly not going to be easy, but, um, you know, they might have the number one player in, in basketball next year in Luca. So, you know, whatever they've got around him is really a bonus.
0: So what sort of play do you think they need to add around Luca to, to take that next step? There were some rumours... In the back end of the season, they were interested in Rudy Gobert. Apparently, that's not the case anymore. Is it more a a sort of a a defensive scoring wing type, like a Jeremy Grant? What do you think they need to add to to help Luca take that next step?
1: I think they're just going to keep trying to find shooters. Um, You know, I think, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith is sort of that 3 and D guy that, you know, that you're talking about there. I think he's, you know... still got improvement ahead of him. He he developed really nicely again for them this year. So I think it's just trying to, again, find, you know, they went after Reggie Bullock this year and it didn't quite work out exactly how they would have liked. But that's the sort of players they're going to be effectively looking for. You know, the Dwight Powell piece is interesting, whether, you know, they can upgrade that position, that sort of starting centre role is probably somewhere that they can look to, to improve and try and get someone, you know, relatively, you know, cheap in that position that they can sort of hold hold that up for them um, because, yeah, that's an area that they can certainly look look to improve just in that, you know, big man. He gets uh, exposed get in it.
0: the playoffs power, doesn't he? He's good in the regular season with the pick and roll with Luca, but come playoffs, he's almost unplayable.
1: Yeah, well, that was the case. The minutes, you know, he's almost getting the token four minutes at the start of the first quarter and four minutes at the start of the third quarter, and that was kind of all he was doing. Then they just go smaller and, and spread out, and, you know, Maxi Kleber and these type of guys are playing more of the big, big man minutes. So if they can kind of solidify that position, a little bit more with a more suitable player to play alongside uh, Luca in that big man spot. Then I think that would certainly be an area they should be looking to upgrade.
0: So I'll ask you the same question I asked with Miami. Where, where do you sort of grade Dallas heading into into next season? We've obviously got Golden State, Memphis, the Clippers. You know they get back Kawhi and PG. Denver obviously get a few guys back from injury as well. You know, Minnesota took a, a really big step this season. Then we've got the Pelicans, of course. You'd expect Zion's going to come back into the fold. Who the hell knows what's going to happen with the Lakers. The Jazz have got some question marks. Maybe Quinn Snyder's not going to come back there. So it's, it's a pretty deep west, you know, as it is in the east. But so where would you grade Dallas heading into next season? If they don't add anybody around uh, Luca? they just sort of run it back with what they did this year. Where, where do you see them squeezing in uh, next season?
1: I don't think they have been that same mix, the three to six positions where they've really been the last couple of seasons. I, I don't think they've got necessarily what I don't think they, they've got the opportunity in the off season to make anything drastic. The change is going to, you know, all of a sudden see them be the number one team in, in basketball. But um, no, I think they're in, right in the glut of those teams, you know, probably alongside, you know, Phoenix and Denver and, um, you know, whether it is the Clippers that, that, that you know, make the biggest improvement um, out of the teams that, that failed this year. So I'd have them in that three to six range and,
0: and you know, going to be really, really competitive and a 50-plus win team. Yeah, and I didn't ever mention Phoenix, but you, you'd expect that uh, Luca's going to want to – I mean, they, they made it to the West Western Conference Finals. Is that enough for Luca to be satisfied, Caddy, with one run to the Western Conference Finals? Or is he going to start looking around and looking at this roster and thinking, oh, I'm not too sure if I'm going to be surrounded by – by enough talent to take me all the way. Now, it's just generally these sort of, for whatever reason, these European players don't jump around from team to team like we see with a lot of the American players. But would there be any concern from a a Mark Cuban perspective that they need to sort of fast-track this and get this talent around Doncic sooner rather than later? Uh,
1: No, I don't think so. I think, you know, they've they've done what they've had to do and the the biggest hurdle is, you know, getting beside the, the big extension, which they've done. They've got him locked up for the next four years at least. On, on great money, as you mentioned that he hasn't sort of had any huge signs that he he's unhappy. I think there's been a bit of upheaval in the Dallas front office on the back of probably worker and, and some relationship problems he had and it seems like Cuban's gonna make sure he'll do whatever it can to make Doncic happy and they the changes were made last off season. So no, I think he'll he'll hang in there and, and let them go to work. They've got Enough sort of versatile pieces there that they can always be active involved with with different deals. And as I said, they are able to identify this year that they didn't have the right mix. Made made a pretty ballsy trade, I thought at the time, and and it certainly paid dividends for them on their playoff run. So I think they just stay the course for now and and don't try and rush anything. They've got a bit of time still, well before even Luca's in his prime, I think. Um, to to you know get the right pieces around him.
0: Yeah, you're, yeah, given that he is under contract, we know that contracts sometimes don't really mean a hell of a lot in the NBA. We see star players forced away all the time out of uh, long contracts, but I don't think Luca, on the surface anyway, appears to be that style of player. So you'd think they'd play a little bit of the slow game, but obviously try and improve the roster whenever they can. So we'll we'll call it there, Caddy. Uh, big game two tomorrow. You're predicting a Boston upset, I suppose, and I'm predicting Golden State will tie it up. So hopefully Golden State tie it up, Caddy. It'd be a bit of a shame if this sort of turned into a quick series after after what we've seen throughout the playoff. I expected this to, to be a, a long series. Uh, what was your prediction in the end? I've gone with Boston in six. What what have you ended up going with?
1: Um, I'll go with – I'll had Boston in six as well. So, um, But to make
0: it a bit more interesting, I'll actually go Boston in five. Oh, going out on a limb, I like it, Caddy. But as I say every week, thank you to everybody who continues to download this podcast. If you haven't jumped on Apple Podcasts yet and give us a five-star rating, please do so. That would be great. We've also got the Facebook page up and going, which we post all the episodes on there. So if you follow that page, you'll know when a new episode is done. Until next week, we'll talk to you then.